Hello there, friends. This is Jeff Till's 500years.org podcast. This is Jeff Till himself. Today is November 8th, 2016. Today also happens to be the presidential election day between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Today I decided I would not vote, as I have really no preference. Neither one of them is really my guy or my gal. And plus, it would be against my beliefs to go and burn an afternoon waiting in line to go give my approval and endorsement to a politician. What I did find interesting was that everyone on Facebook was beaming about the sticker that they got, and that was the number one selfie today is a picture, a self-picture of your you know, smiling with your smug little I voted sticker on your chest. And I think that's kind of interesting that when people go to a government building, go meet with the old lady, take a multiple choice test where there's only a few options, and then they're rewarded with a sticker, just like what? Just like school. It's just as if they have conditioned people to think that a sticker is a great reward something to be, you know, to boast about. And sadly, that sticker might be the only thing anyone really gets from this. The election has been billed as a existential threat of an election, meaning whoever wins the other half of the country or the whole country is thrown into mega despair and the world is forever ruined. And it's really kind of sad and pathetic that people are believing that their own futures are determined by what the other half of the people want to put upon them. At the same time, it's also kind of weird that people are so happy to show their stickers, even though most people are terrified of what the outcome of the election would be. So it's sort of like, yay, democracy. And then at the same time, holy shit, I can't believe democracy is happening. So it's really inconsistent. It's too bad that we can't have an event where everybody just gets what they want and everybody walks away from the the whole interaction being happy. And that, of course, is what voluntary collaboration is like in our everyday lives, in our commerce, and our you know personal space. So anyways, this, this podcast is not about politics or the election. It's about school. And if you've heard my first podcast or have read my book or saw my blog, you've seen the 58 arguments against school and for home education. And I do, if you haven't seen that, I do encourage you to check it out. It's probably my best work. And uh, if you were to look at that, you'd say, well, this guy can't really say anything else about school. He's certainly said his entire piece. And somehow I've managed to come up with some more stuff. So here we go. School is for poor people. Um, like the hot dogs? It tasted rubbery. It tasted like it was like a giant plastic hot dog. Their meat. Can you describe their meat? Chewy. Um, taste bad. 
it, it looks orange, but, but it tastes sort. It tastes fifty percent plastic and then fifty percent actual food. Yellowy brown. Sometimes it's burnt. A couple years ago, back, kids were so intrigued by the hot dogs because when they dropped them on the table, they bounced around a little. One of my friends named Abby, she watched a hot dog and you know those like they're really rubbery and she saw it wiggle. And someone found living squirming maggots in them. In the barf peach cup thing. Nobody eats that. Uh, some of their chicken tenders are uncooked. It's gonna be a rant about homework. Homework. What the fuck? Fuck homework. Like, God, homework sucks. Like, you know, like, why do we gotta do homework? Like, we already do work at school, so why give us more work for home? We get no time to ourselves, like, seriously, like, we spend, like, gotta get up at six in the morning of course and we and then we have to spend like seven hours at school from like 8 a.m till 3 p.m doing freaking work that we don't freaking want to do we spend eight hours doing that shit okay i mean one hour we have like one hour for like a half hour for lunch and the other half hour is resource which uh, is a class i'll talk about you can do homework but like Middle school sucked gorilla balls. Middle school for me had teachers I never liked. It was classrooms full of retards. There were still plenty of moments and plenty of times where we had to line up single file, orderly lines just to fucking go somewhere. Am I five years old? Am I stupid? Everybody was too busy trying to discover their freaking personalities. They were lost within themselves. That's where he determined. Do I want to be the douchebag toolish kid in high school? Or should I be the valley girl slut? This is all determined in the middle school process. Homework every day was a waste of time since I didn't learn jack shit. Nor can I even recall a classroom setting where I enjoyed learning about the information. Lucky for me, I didn't pay attention to any of that bullshit, goofed off with my friends, and tried to make the most of it. The Dead Whore in the Bathtub Years ago, I woke up and my head was absolutely pounding and I had no idea where I was. I, I looked around and I was in this strange, dirty hotel room. I was completely naked. And I felt like I had done something nasty, something dirty. My head was absolutely pounding. I must have drank so much the night before that really beyond chatting up a few girls at the bar, I couldn't really remember what happened. And that's when I saw something unusual. The bathroom door ajar. 
So I pulled my underwear up, got out of bed, and walked over to the bathroom. And there, in, in, in the bathtub, was a woman completely naked and covered in blood. There was money strewn on the floor and a knife covered in blood on the floor. What had happened? What did I do? How, how could this happen? So do you ever have an intense feeling of regret and it's not because you do something bad and realize it, but it's that you did something bad and you didn't realize it was bad after you did it. So this is sort of how I felt in a really profound way, or do feel, about sending my kids to school for a few years before taking them out to homeschool three years ago. When I was in that mode, uh, I was working completely in autopilot. I had not thought about sending my kids to school or which one I should send them to or how long they should go or what they should study or how much homework they should have. I just went along with the pro program without thinking of it at all. I've explained this before. Once I started doing the research, and then especially once I took them out, I started looking back at what I had done with a huge amount of remorse and regret to the point where sending them to school barely makes any sense at all. When you look at the massive amount of time of me just porting my kids to go sit with the government for eight hours a day, five days a week, spending all day, all of their childhood, all of the what's supposedly supposed to be one of the most joyous parts of someone's life, uh, stuck inside a, a government building, being told to you know sit down and shut up and having to ask for permission to do something as small as going to the bathroom or getting a sip of water, and being taught ritualistically to hate your subjects, hate learning, hate the process of reading books and taking in new information. And looking back, I'm so disgusted with the idea of school that I can barely believe that I did it myself. Now, I have a, another confession to make. I didn't really ever find a dead whore in my bathtub. And I admit that it's a bit of a hyperbole to make the comparison. But still, it really is night and day between doing something where you don't even realize that you're doing something wrong to waking up, you know, with that sort of new hangover and realizing what you were doing before was absolutely awful. So awful, in fact, that it may have hurt, hurt the children that entire time they were going and then damaged them in a way that's very difficult to repair for years and years and years after that. So what a tragic robbery I was beginning to enact on my children. And while I can feel some elation, some redemption for taking them out, I can also see the regret that I have and the regret that perhaps I've dodged had I not realized until later. I have another sadness about schooling, and that's that most parents don't spend much time with their kids whatsoever. And I could hear, you know, 
people protest this if I were to went, you know, around my neighborhood and talk to the other parents that I know who do send their kids to school. And I'm sure they could tell me how they spend plenty of time uh, having great conversations at the dinner table and on their rides to, to soccer and to school and the time they get to spend on the weekend. But really, it's 90% of all parents in the United States do not really spend much time with their kids. And it's just they can't because the school takes them away for the majority of the day. And so even, and people might say, well, a lot of, most people have to go to work somewhere. But in those families, you could at least have one parent who is there to spend time with their children for the majority of their time during the week instead of sending them off to school where they are completely isolated from their family. And what's interesting is that, you know, so it's 97% of parents who are probably shipping off 80% of their waking time during the week uh, of not seeing their children. But when you actually get to experience seeing your children all the time, you don't have to necessarily constantly uh, be working on that project together or playing catch or playing Uno. You're you're often just inhabiting the, the same house and having those very small interactions whether it's at, at mealtimes, uh, lunch, breakfast, dinner, uh, passing each other in the hall, asking each other, you know, what, what are you doing? Are you enjoying yourself now? Uh, you know, what video are you watching? Or, you know, Dad, what are you doing for work right now? And you get to have these wonderful interactions during the day. At the same time, these homeschooled, homeschooled kids get a tremendous amount of more privacy than a school kid gets. So a school kid unless he can uh, sneak off to pinch a loaf in the bathroom, pretty much is under constant surveillance and is constantly in a group. So they almost never get this wonderful time to go into their bedrooms and lock their doors and spend time away from people and have alone time to imagine or to play or to think or to read, etc. And the neat thing about the homeschool situation, especially for if you can set your family up like I do, where I'm at home full-time, my mother, uh, their mother, my wife, is home full-time as well, and she doesn't work, is that you can actually facilitate a ton of time together while also having a ton of time apart that is spent in private, uh, again, as opposed to school where it's constant surveillance and constant crowds of kids your own age regardless if you want them or not. So that was one observation I had. Uh, most parents don't get to see their kids to the point where I almost wonder, wonder why they bother to have them. And then they also rob all opportunities for privacy uh, through the schooling system. Now, another conundrum that I have is that I can't really say this to anybody I know. I can't equate schooling to the dead whore in the bathtub and the, the amount of regret I have, I can't tell people that 90%, 97% of you parents don't spend time with your kids at all. It's almost impossible to tell other people that you home educate without feeling like you're going to get yelled at, spit on, or, or, or punched. Uh, a lot of times, if you say anything that's sort of true, that school is the most destructive waste of time ever invented by all of humanity and all history, uh, that it looks like a grubby daycare for poor people, that you're, you know, heralding your kids off to sit with the government all day, that you're instilling a system where learning is something to be hated, uh, that the subjects are often either the useless ones or the non-interesting ones and are soon forgotten anyways, that a person's sense of privacy, sense of autonomy, independence, 
creativity, you know, is all driven down by a system of authority, force, boredom, surveillance, conformity. <laughs> you know, all of these things are so offensive. I mean, you, you can go and tell people that you're, you know, other, you know, really wild positions, such as you don't believe there should be a government, for example. And everyone's like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, but you tell them, you know, something bad about this institution of school, and you feel like you're, you know, dealing with a loaded gun. And so that, that means we homeschoolers often say really lame things about, you know, why we homeschool when talking to the non-homeschooling parents. We say things like, well, we thought we'd try it out and see if it works for us. Or, you know, my kids like to learn a little bit differently, you know, or, oh, it just works for our situation since we're at home and we thought we could help out with education. You know, like it's just this really milk toast, you know, totally pussy way of describing what really is this, you know, horrible, you know, disease that that compulsory schooling is. Robin, today's rant topic is a popular request by all of you guys, which is a rant on high school and why it sucks. Like seriously, where do I begin? If you're going to high school, you automatically have no line. No, I'm kidding. We all have to go through it. First off, I'll say this. If you dropped out of high school as in you failed, you made it to the non-grad list or whatever, you are fucking stupid. You literally have to put an effort to fail in high school. That's like getting straight D's and F's in all your classes. How is that possible? You take easy shit classes like sociology, common sense, elective. The one major thing I fucking despise school, especially zero periods, is waking up in the morning. Let me sleep! If school started at 9 and then maybe like at 4 or something, I'll be happy. Waking up early morning, going to like your first period when you have math class, it's impossible. There are teachers that are like really cool, really straightforward, really cool with you, helping y'all, like whatever. Then there's teachers like semi-cool. Then there's teachers butthurt as shit. First day of class, you know, this teacher's fucking butthurt. Then there's teachers that, like, absolutely have no clue what they're doing. Okay, class, you know, you read the chapter, you can see here it says, and, alright, work quietly. And, and then there's that teacher that you want to fuck. <laughs> there's always that one really slow kid in class, or there's always that, that dumb belong where the teacher be like, Okay, class, I'm not your, obviously, your teacher, but uh, I'm subbing for next week, and he's going to be back next Monday. Oh, wait. So, like, are you a permanent teacher? And the teacher somehow, like, answers it legitimately. Or if I was a teacher, someone I'd be like, you're fucking retarded. I just said it. Someone else literally would ask the same question. So, like, what are you going to, like, I don't get it. So, you've got that one moment. I know this happened to all of you guys in some school year, but it's like history class or whatever. That one ultimate stupidest thing you've ever heard throughout your entire years of high school. Wait! So... The United States is on the world map? Outcomes. Pretty much every fuckwit, asshat, and douchebag you ever met went to school, and the overwhelming majority of them went to public school. So did every half-ass, asshole moron, creep, geek, mouth breather, 
bullshit artist, idiot, cocksucker, dickweed, jerk, imbecile, dink, dork, maroon, half-wit, shit for brains, fuckface, asshammer, dickhead, pussy wimp, airhead, slut bimbo, ass kisser, dweeb, gas bag, freak, ignoramus, hick, redneck, kook, lardass, meathead, masshole, tool, twerp, twit, wanker, weirdo, yahoo, zero, White trash, dipshit, bitch, hussy, fucktard, ass clown, sleazebag, doofus, dink, and fuckstick as well. So did every failure. Poor person, bum, hobo, homeless person, inbreed, deadbeat, and crazy person. And so did every sicko, wife beater, faker, bully, thief, liar, fraud, murderer, psycho, and politician. But what of it? So did most of the happy, kind, and successful people, too. And so did you, and so did I. So I guess there's no guarantee in what shapes what children become. Certainly not with school. There's some ongoing debate about helicopter parenting, the uh, the Tiger Moms, and participation award type culture in children now growing up. We now have the most school generation of students in all history, probably, and the ones that are in school now will be even more schooled than them. We already see these trends of uh, millennials coming out of high school or even college being completely infantilized and not ready to participate in the workforce, a lot of them moving back home. Now, some of that's because of the economy, but a a lot of it's just people not being prepared. And we've seen the participation award culture and the helicopter parenting manifest itself even legally, where parents aren't even allowed to let their children walk alone in the neighborhood or play at a park by themselves. And the thing is, is that everyone has this, or not everyone, but a lot of people have this instinct that this is actually going to be very damaging for children. And then they see this happening in school, too, where as we go more and more into the testing culture, more and more into less creative assignments and more memorization where there's more dependency on the students to be told what to do, that this is actually going to ruin children in the long term. And the debate's going on. People are talking about it. But no one seems to be genuinely terrified to actually change anything, meaning we're just watching the helicopter-parented participation award uh, culture and institution be thrusted upon the children but nobody seems to be too worried in reality about what happens when the people when the children come out on the other end of this this funnel or this this conveyor belt you know and what's going to happen to them and then what we're seeing now is we see the dysfunction in a lot of young people who are done with the schooling process who are done with their helicopter parenting and who have amassed their participation awards and they aren't working out well so before we write too many articles or do too many podcasts uh, saying that we should reform the school system and that parents should take a uh, a less protective role in raising their children, let them be more free range, let them have more free play. Uh, individuals should actually be looking in the mirror going, you know, holy shit, we shouldn't be doing this, at least to our children, and pulling them out of that participation award culture. Another aspect of school is that it seems to reinforce that misery is a default state of life, that lack of control of your time, that having to grind through things is a required state. And parents 
seem to reinforce this. You know, they say if you think this is bad, wait until you're an adult. Wait till you're in the real world. Meaning that school isn't just thought of as a place to, in its best light, where kids are, you know, learn and learn how to behave. They're learned to be conditioned towards misery, towards putting up with things, towards putting up with conformity, uh, being conditioned to be told what to do. And of course, that would be very, very positive if you are a factory worker and you're looking for a workforce. Uh, it, parents can also believe that it is positive because they do have their real life experience putting up with a lot of bullshit, having to go to work and being told what to do and not having that good relationship with, with co commerce and value building, but rather have this experience of work, particularly the more and more buried they are within a bureaucracy or within a corporation of knowing that they just have to grind it out day after day, waiting until Friday night when they can anesthetize themselves uh, for, the, for the weekend before going through it again. And that might be a valid idea that it's somehow necessary to condition people to ex accept grudgery and misery uh, because then they will accept misery as the standard and won't constantly be bitching and moaning and rebelling to get out of the misery and the, the drudgery and not be effective adults. But at the same time, like, aren't you sort of setting up people up to, if you accept, if, if you try to condition people to accept being miserable, you're almost guaranteed that outcome. It's almost a, a manifest destiny, if you will, where if you expect to be miserable, you are more likely to put up with it and more likely to try to change things to not be miserable. The opposite of this would be to condition children to maximize their happiness, their opportunities, their independence, and not take being miserable as the default state of life, but instead being self-directed and happy and engaged as their default set in life. And then when they are sprung onto the world as adults, they hopefully don't, you know, they refuse to take that position that is drudgery and misery and just getting through the day to make it to another evening, to make it to another weekend, but instead insist on taking control of their life. And whether that means they become a passioned uh, enjoyment seeker or they become a engaged employee who works to create value or they become an entrepreneur or they they've learned to reprioritize their lives so that they they can focus on things that make them happy such as uh, such as learning or hobbies or people they love or creating music or whatever it is that they can understand that the happiness is the goal and it's not just a life where we put up with misery because that's the way everything has to be. I've been to school. I think you've been to school. Honestly, my, my days at school, I, I, di I didn't enjoy them. In fact, I hated them so much. Mainly because teachers no longer motivate the student. Also, schools don't focus on what you really want to do. You know, in schools, you have exams. If you fail your exams, they make it as if there's nothing else for you in life. That is, that is not true. School isn't the only way to get a future. But they make it as if it is. Like teachers, all they want is their paycheck. That is all they want. They, they, they no longer care about the student. 
And the teachers that do care about the students tend to be pedophiles. <laughs> it's, it's sad. It's really sad. Because school is like a major, major part of someone's life. And and if if they're not getting the correct attention that they need when they're going to school, there's, what, what happens? They end up dropping out, isn't it? They drop out. They'll get bored. They'll go into something negative. And that can result in them, you know, killing themselves. Learning. Let's talk a little bit about learning. Now, proponents of school will tell you that learning is one of the best things people can do, and I couldn't agree more. But really, for those that desire knowledge, school is completely unnecessary. And just about everyone probably desires knowledge more before they go to school than they do afterwards. People really love knowledge. People like to listen to podcasts. They like to watch, consume media. They like to read books. They like to learn by doing. And most people who are have a really good relationship with learning and knowledge are desperate to do it on their own. Most people who have a bad relationship with learning, in my opinion, are probably those who learned a distaste of it from being forced to do it at school. We should also be careful not to get excited about school subjects, because most of them really aren't anything to get excited about. And I would extend this to homeschoolers who feel obligated to replicate the school experience at home and make sure things like memorizing capitals and quadratic equations and things of this nature are you know, critical to learn when, in fact, they're not. I've said this before, but just put every topic that is interesting, such as ethics or philosophy or economics or finance or running a business or commerce or some, you know some of even some of the the more difficult sciences if that's what you like the things that are interesting about entertainment or sports all of this none of this is taught in the school for the most part and everything necessary be it from taking out an auto loan to learning about proper oral hygiene to how to cook a meal to how to do laundry Everything that's necessary in life is never taught in school, and that's because it's too important to not be to have it fail. So short of reading, writing, and math, school has to pick totally harmless, toothless subjects to teach because they're the only ones that can afford to fail a human. So the rudimentary science, the more advanced mathematics for people who aren't really into science or engineering, uh, the the great man theory type history that's taught, geography, sociology, English, literature. While all these topics have their merits, they're all ones that can be perfectly failable, meaning the, inst the educational institution completely failed to pass a good knowledge of this on to the students. And we see this happen. Because a lot of times it does fail, especially when teaching to the test. You can ask students, you know, what they remember just moments after, and they can't. We could go on, you know, spelling, grammar. Um, these are all subjects that there's no social harm if the school fails to teach them. But everything that does have, would have real personal or social harm. 
such as those necessary skills to live a life can't be taught at school because they can't fail. And everything interesting, I'm not sure why, but everything interesting would probably reveal school for how poorly it does in education. Now, what does this do to a person who is perpetually taught that the harmless subjects are so critical and despite them not being interesting and despite them not being necessary, um, why so much time and so much investment has to go into them, that whole 15,000 hours. You know, what does that do to a child's understanding of epistemology and how knowledge and learning works within their lives when it's just this authority repeats over and over that the most harmless and most the least useful and the least interesting subjects are the ones that you must put all of your learning resources into. So coming out at the end of this, you could you could imagine that people would have absolutely horrible priorities when it came to learning. And the first time that they're given a chance to maybe even pursue learning somewhat less directed, which would be university, they even a lot of times will pick up you know, the bad habits of, of what they learned in school, whether they, they pick a topic they don't particularly find interesting, whether it's one of the studies, you know, studies types curriculums um, that has, you know, is neither useful nor typically interesting, but so prevalent. And I'm talking about, you know, there's women's studies and African studies and uh, anthropology and, and uh, social services, whatever and then get confused about figuring out how to learn useful subjects. So even then, there'll be a misguided desire to go to like business school or learn communications, even though the direct path to learning those things is not through a teacher who's never really participated uh, in, in business or marketing or communications. So anyway, I think the damage of the prioritization of the harmless topics might be very much more damaging than anyone cares to admit. The antidote to this problem, of course, is to probably to blow open the range of topics that a student uh, should be able to pursue. And that means it's not, certainly not a federal government with Common Core picking out the curriculum for 40 million different students of various interests, backgrounds, ages, geographies, etc. The best way, in my opinion, is the unschooling method, where parents and other mentors, as best as they can, can introduce different subjects, whether that is philosophy or it's cooking or, you know, even even um, the traditional harmless subjects, such as history, or science and letting the the student pick what they want to do. This can ensure that only interesting subjects come onto the radar and that necessary subjects are discovered by them being necessary. So and that can include things such as basic arithmetic, writing, composition, reading, as well as doing things like finance or understanding commerce or understanding even manners, or learning a real skill. And so once this is opened up, we don't confuse the kids by saying, here are the only valid subjects that are worth 
this massive amount of of your attention resources. Instead, we're going to let you allocate your own resources. We'll give you some advice on what good pursuits might be. But in the end, the we want you to learn how to learn. We want you to learn how to select what you're going to learn. We're going to let you choose your own methods that work best for you and also the best avenues and methodologies and subjects for what's going to actually make a person come alive and not confuse them later on. I'm going to take this idea a little bit further and just suggest that there should be no, quote, should, unquote, in knowledge and learning. So a whole tenet of school and education or institutional education is that there's always something that people should know or should be learning. And really, when the word should is used, it should only be used when applied to yourself. So it should be perfectly fine for me to say that I should stop doing this or that, or I should learn this, but there's very little that any authority should um, have in saying that this person should know this or that. And I think that's a very dangerous concept to uh, to have go forward, that, that everything in, in learning and education should have a should behind it. Just my opinion. I also don't think that anyone needs grades, test, competition, or external approval to validate learning. I think if you are a intelligent, free person with your own desires and your own, you know, a sense of self-worth, you should be able to know whether you've learned something well enough or whether you want to learn something more. In the sort of the field of ideas, every person is going to run into other people who are going to be smarter than them or have better ideas. And that's exactly where you can sort of self-test whether you feel like your knowledge is enough in a particular topic. If it's in something useful, like cooking a meal, eventually you will taste the meal and decide whether you have known enough to prepare it or not, or you will serve it to someone else and they can let you know. But uh, And the same thing in the workplace. If you are continually advancing your skills and learning the things you need to do to add value to your organization or to the company that you own, then you know that you're on the right path. But you certainly don't need to be arbitrarily graded on any particular subject, especially with a trite you know, letter system. Uh, you don't need the rewards. You don't need to be given a sticker. Uh, you don't need to be compare, compared to a bunch of arbitrary peers. When it, it's relevant to be compared to peers, you will have those opportunities. The child will have those opportunities. Whether that's in anything, whether you're playing a sport, we're going to see who's, who makes more baskets. Whether you are examining biology, we'll know who knows their parts and who doesn't, if that's what interests them. But you don't need to take, again, one of these harmless subjects and insist that people are graded or that they compete or earn external approval as a valid measure for whether learning was successful. All these notions of, you know, what you should do, what things are necessary, you know, to learn these, these trite subjects, the whole system of grades and testing and competition and external approval is all sold to us often as being something that prepares children for the real world. And this is so such a bald-faced, uh, outrageous lie 
that everybody should just laugh it off as soon as they hear this, because none of this stuff really exists in, quote, the real world. Certainly not the real adult world once we are freed from school. Hey, I'm going to teach you how to cure a common problem, and it's when you are lacking in a specific piece of knowledge, and or you, you sort of think you have a point, and you either realize that there's, quote, there's more to it than that, or perhaps someone else hears your argument or hears your explanation and says there's more to it, more to it than that, or you come across a problem or an area that you don't really understand, and you're at that point where you know there's more to it than that. And I've had these experiences, like when uh, George Bush W. was pushing the I- Iraq War. It always there always was this message on TV that it was because of uh, this existential threat of weapons of mass destruction, you know, matched with uh, some some link to revenge for 9/11. And but it didn't really make sense. And so I always thought, well, there's got to be more to it than that. There's something behind the curtain where there's more information that I just didn't have. And if I had that, it, suddenly that would make sense. And this happened all the time at work when I was a young management consultant. Uh, we would go in and there would be a, a merchandising or an inventory uh, type of model or a managing of customer model where we were going into a complex call center and had to figure out how to make customers happier in this, you know, 2000 person customer service organization that had computers and processes and, uh, you know, methods and, and tools, et cetera. And it was, when I didn't really know much about it, it's like, oh, well, the solution or understanding this means that there's, there's more to it than whatever rudimentary understanding that I have. And really the way that you cure this is you have to just do your research and there's really almost no topic that you can't get to the bottom of if uh if you if you spend enough time my job now now that i'm almost 46 i own a a company where i write papers on super complex topics where i'm constantly being thrown into areas where i should have no expertise and have to then even interview people who have been in these these areas for uh, for 20, 30 years. Uh, the latest one, I've probably already talked about these because I haven't had that many papers recently, but uh, doing analytics for taxes uh, in large enterprises, uh, just did two on airplane manufacturing and the use of artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things and how it applies. So, of course, I don't know much about any of these topics. And so it's always, when I first get there, it's like, ooh, I half understand, but there's more to it than that. And so what happens is one of two things is you do the research, you you, and there's, there's limitless information online and limitless information that you can find talking to people. And you either develop a really deep understanding uh, that... All of a sudden, that the more to it, you know, there's more to it than that. You fill in that gap, and there's no longer more to it because you actually know all of the more to it. And then, most of the time, you might find out that there really isn't any more to it. Um, and then, so, like in the case of the Iraq War 
it turned out that the more research you did, the more you realized that the the main story probably wasn't true, and they were probably just killing people to make money. Uh, same as with uh, how to how to make customers happier. While, while it looked wildly confusing stepping into the call center, it turned out you just had to train the people on the phone to be nice, take care of the request that the customers were calling for, and generally be cheerful and helpful. So there really wasn't more to it. But you don't know, you don't you don't uh, dismiss that sort of veil of uncertainty until you actually do dig in and find out. And I'm fearful, going back to our school theme, that too often were sort of dealt conclusions to memorize and were not given the ability to always dig in and figure out how to clear up that there's more to it than that. Now, learning and gaining knowledge isn't always about digging in and getting new facts and new ideas. Sometimes you actually have to be able to blank out or reverse knowledge that you already have in your head, which means unlearning is often just as critical a step in learning something new as gaining new information. A lot of times, if you have, if you're halfway to the truth, if you could imagine a graph of at, at zero, you're completely ignorant and halfway you have half the information and then to get to the truth you have to go to the full way and so that says you have a half a gap of information that you need to find the truth uh you would think you'd be in pretty good shape going forward but if that first half you have is a wrong conclusion then it's very important that you unlearn that because what you are is you actually are already in a deficit the wrong direction. You actually have three halves of a gap because you have to unlearn what you just did and then get back to a state of ignorance. So, and I think this is more prevalent than most people think. We talked last episode about having little visits with your indoctrination or having visits with the, you know, the boatload of information you were spoon-fed as a child be that in human relations via parenting, uh, your relationship with reality, you know, with uh, your relationship with church and, and Jesus and that, and then also your relationship with government authority and school. And so a lot of times to actually learn something, you need to erase, you need to obtain a state of ignorance. Now, I had to do this with my whole view of homeschooling and the value of institutional schooling. I had to first unlearn that and then learn what, you know, freedom and education really mean to me. I had to do that a lot with political views when I was younger. I had to unlearn and be, develop a state of, of ignorance, a complete state of ignorance towards like what the government does in its different various functions. I also had to do that to some degree with how I understood parenting and relationship to children is. Uh, some people have to do that, whether they, maybe they spank their child, uh, maybe they have other bad ideas that, that they need to unlearn. But that's a, I think that's a hugely important skill. And the hard part, of course, is that it's very hard to identify sometimes when you have a bad idea in your head that needs to be reversed out before you can move on and close the gap to find the real truth. And I'm not going to claim to be any expert in this. I've only have a few, you know, a handful of moments where I've seen that path for myself. And now I feel like I'm a little bit more aware of it. But I also see not only my own struggle 
with unlearning things, I see everyone else's struggle as well. We're going to be talking a lot later on about, not in this podcast, but in a new series that's brewing about de-schooling, which is being able to take, trying, try to unlearn a, a lot of the lessons that school taught and a lot of these things that we've, ta- we've talked about here, whether it's, you know, it's this pre, this already this indoctrinated or, or hammered in view of authority and conformity and how learning occurs and obedience and how this actually leaves a massive scar or a massive raft of scars on somebody's mind and that actually the acts of cleansing those of unlearning bad ideas that were delivered in our childhood is actually a much more serious activity than just even coming you know to realize that that bad knowledge is there so we're gonna go i'm doing this with my friend zach slayback and we've already got like a killer interview with uh, Peter Gray. And hopefully in the coming months, we're going to release this uh, series on de-schooling, you know, undoing the damage of indoctrination and healing oneself for success and happiness. I promise now, but we'll see if it happens. Another technique that I've learned about learning is to learn like a programmer, like a software programmer. And so my background in software programming, I'm not an ace uh, technologist or, or programmer, but about 15 years ago, there was some things I wanted to do online. I had a vision for a couple products that needed software-like functionality to work on the web. And I had suddenly a lot of time on my hands. So I decided to teach myself web programming and not just HTML and CSS, but also how to, how to use PHP to actually do if-then-else commands, uh, how, to, how to validate data, how to take data in, store it in forms and fields, and then store it in a MySQL database and actually create fully featured functional applications. And I was able to do that. How I found learning coding was not through the school approach where you sign up for a class and you sit and you're taught a pre, you know, pre-planned curriculum of things that an instructor might think you find useful. What you instead do is you learn everything that you need to do as you need to do it. So the very first thing is you may just teach yourself how to make a word appear on the screen. If you had computer club, now I'm, I'm a lot older than half, half the population of the world at this point, but when I was in school, computer club, we had uh, Apple, uh, Apple twos, you know, that didn't really have graphics or anything. And all you did is you learned how to make your name. And then you made, you learned how to make your, the command that made your name flash. And then you learned the command that says, you know, to, have a question pop on screen and then you had learned the command to respond to an answer, a yes or no answer. And that's eventually how, as an adult, I learned how to, how to program was every time I needed to learn the next skill is you go out and acquire that, that skill right on, you know, in real time. And eventually the, the roster or this library of skills you learn gets very broad, but still was only based on what, what you ever needed to do. But the fun part was you didn't have to learn, ever learn 
a bunch of things that you were never going to use. So if there was a complicated date calculation formula, that would be very helpful to one person, uh, but not another, and not yourself. You didn't have to learn it. But if there was this, you know, this, this other weird calculation that was very relevant to your program, you could go out and learn that. And it's been 15 years since I've really was heavy into this, maybe not quite that long, maybe seven years ago. Uh, but now with considering the amount of communities online for something like programming, the, the number of YouTubes, it's got to be even like rocket like quick. But with this technique, and you can do this with cooking, I'm sure you can do this. You can do this in marketing is just, you know, start doing and then learn as, you know, acquire skills as they're, they're needed of, you know, that they're needed you know, within, within the scope of what you're doing. And at the same time, you don't have to pick the scope of your learning ahead of time. You can pick a goal, like I'm going to have this application that does X, Y, and Z. So I don't have to worry that I don't have all of the knowledge right, right now to finish it. I know that I can do both at the same time. I can do the learning and the doing simultaneously, simultaneously, and I'm only going to pick up the skills that I need to get the job done. And I'm going to get the job done only learning the skills that I need to. Neat, huh? Hi. They're lying to your face. I don't know why they would ever do that, but they are. Don't believe them. It sucks. Everything about it, mostly everything, sucks. But I'm going to go into detail about my least favorite things because I thank goodness I'm starting online schooling. So I'm officially out of real high school, so I never have to go back there. Number one thing I hate about high school, the teachers that give you limited bathroom passes. I don't know if anybody else's schools do this, but mine does, and I don't, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Whole year of school, okay? Now, say you're a woman, like myself, and women sometimes have womanly problems. I'm not gonna go into detail. You can't tell me that I can't go to the bathroom. I need to go to the bathroom. If I'm all out of passes, and I am a woman, and I need to use the restroom, I'm going to go to that restroom, okay? College! That was loud. Now we're going to talk about college, some ideas about going to university. As I've said before, I went to Western Michigan University, a third tier school within the public school within the state my total tuition was fourteen thousand dollars for the entirety of the five years that i went there and i was never struggled i never had a, a left with a large amount of debt my parents paid for it and even if they hadn't i earned enough money in about two weeks at my current job to pay for my entire degree i studied watercolor painting and acting and for school, it was critical that I did this because I probably would have had no chance of making it through the entire boring five years to my degree unless I had the most easiest and most fun topics I could have studied. So had I gone into something practical that would have prepared me for a career uh, or even something that prepared me for my career, such as marketing or communications or graphic design, I don't think I would have made it through. I've often said that my college experience was very much necessary in that I conflated the building of maturity or obtaining maturity with the experience of college. Because when I left high school, 
at 17. I, I really was kind of a shit show of an immature, sort of uh, nutty, irresponsible punk rocker, even though I had held jobs since I was 14. And so I always, after college, described that I needed it to literally shake the idiot out of me, and that college for most people might be necessary just for this purpose of just shaking the idiot out of children. And I now sort of think about it differently. For one, I'm sort of saddened that I may have been infantilized infantilized uh, through my public schooling process so that I really was, I did have the experience of being dependent on others to tell me what to do, a, a, a very poor sense of autonomy and independence and a poor sense of self-drive, even though I was uh, riddled with self-directed hobbies throughout the time. The other thing that I think is different is there's probably less expensive, less painful, less institutionalized, way, less institutionalized ways of shaking the idiot out of someone or building maturity. So almost any work task that I would have pursued right after high school, or even had I left high school early without graduating and began showing up somewhere on time, following instruction, finding ways to add value, probably would have been a much faster maturing process than I ever got through university and would have been income positive versus income negative. So I really don't think if university and college just had that one feature of trying the maturation process, I still think it might be illegitimate for most people. Now, this is to sort of forego the other criticisms of university, which are a lot uh, the same as school. So if I had redone my 58 cases, my 58 arguments against education and for home education, I would think just about all of those would still stick would still stick uh, in the analysis of, of university, whether that would be uh, losing independence and self-autonomy, uh, not really being a free agent, being dependent on being told what to do, being limited in creativity and value production, being separated from commerce, uh, having a bow down or a uh, worship or a uh, obedience to authority. All of these things still happen in the university setting, just a little bit more gentler than they do in the public school setting, because you can pick more of your own courses, you can choose whether to show up, and you don't actually aren't required to go by law, nor are you required to pay for it necessarily, either, although I do believe most universities receive public funding. If I were to go back and have a heart-to-heart -heart with myself before college, I might really try to press that the college is not the only way that you can succeed in life. And when you get into the beginning of high school and towards the middle of high school, or at least where I grew up, they pound into you with unapologetic and ferocious rigor that going to college is the only way you're ever going to not be a hapless loser in life and find meaningful work that's going to pay you any money whatsoever. Any path that's not college is a direct beeline, uh, you know, a direct rocket ship ride straight to the fryer job at McDonald's. And of course, what they don't tell you is that college actually does a really poor job of preparing you for the workforce. In fact, they almost focus on not teaching you anything that is a meaningful job skill in a lot of in, in most uh, lines of studies 
they very rarely take you through even the the job search process or how to create a resume, uh, how to even how to act like a proper employee. All of these things. And then they have no accountability either. They just release you upon the world. And whether you're equipped to find a job or not, uh, now that you're a graduate of college, you're usually now just starting to make up and learn that process. And if you struggle, you have uh, nothing you can hold the college accountable for. One thing that they also don't tell you is that your diploma disappears after you have your first real job. So once you actually get your first job the on your resume, which used to have education as its first uh, bullet, that education jumps immediately to the very bottom of the page. And as a job, as a tool for finding work, um, the only thing that employers look at that education for really is to get a rough idea of your age. And so I've, I've hired quite a few people in my, my day, and that's actually my review process of a resume, is I first look if the person looks interesting at all, I jump right down to the bottom to not look at what their degree is in, but whether, you know, what the date was so that I can get a rough approximation of age. And really, I wish they just would have it standard practice to put an age on resumes, mostly because I like to hire young. Uh, old people tend to get ruined if, uh, you know, unless they're very careful, which is, is kind of a horrible thing to say. But finding... You know, you can, you can sort of see the, a resume is really sort of like a, a life story and it's, it's an old fashioned way of, of telling it, but it's basically, you know, what's the story of this person's career. And you can always tell someone who, for, for example, like a a really poor one, we just had, uh, an applicant who had three different master's degrees and was a little bit older than me in her late forties and was applying for a, a very low level position and you could just see this poisoned person who had been, you know, wrecked through their education and then rendered incompetent. And it's that story that you can see that, you know, tells, tells me as the employer whether this person is good or not. But anyway, so if just knowing that that diploma, that education credential completely disappears after your first job would make people probably, you know, think about the the value of college more so than they do now. Right now, I don't think it's even evaluated in terms of what value it provides, especially versus how much it costs. Uh, and people don't even know the real cost because they, they see the debt that comes out, but they don't see the double loss of you. You wasted the time. Uh, you incurred, incurred the cost. You've incurred this, this handcuff that lives with you for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And, you know, just the, the whole, what the return was over the time invested, the money invested, and the constraints that it puts on you forever. Now, I think, I think most people here have already heard us talk about Praxis. If, um, if a lot of you aren't already uh, listening to the Isaac Morehouse podcast or not a subset of that anyways, uh, Praxis is an alternative program to college where people do like a nine-month internship uh, as well as an intense study of different very useful and very relevant subjects such as web marketing, uh, economics, philosophy, and other topics like this. And then they, they come out of this nine-month process with, that, with zero debt and a guarantee of a job making $50,000 or more per year, which is already exceeds what the average household 
and by average household, I'm talking about families that might have two incomes or, or uh, people who have been in the workforce for 25 years. So the these it's turning out 18-year-olds who are getting $50,000 a year jobs uh, at just an incredible success rate, and the pace is moving up. And I think it's a, it's a great, uh, you know, amazing program. But the, the one bit of sadness that I have in it is that it just had to be invented about three years ago. And so there's been this maybe two generations of people who have been force funneled into this belief that the university is the only way to go. And this whole time, the the federal funding of college degrees has increased and the, you know, people aren't, aren't leaving school with a $14,000 bill from the five years, but they're leaving with a $100,000 bill or a $200,000 bill of debt. And all of the rich alternatives, which could have existed in like a totally free education marketplace that didn't have the government funding, the universities, the universities didn't have the public schools, uh, you know, cl- claiming high high and low that that college was the only way to go all of these sort of faith you know fake uh constraints sort of limited a million other programs that could have been like not even like praxis but could have been all sorts of different flavors and execution models and methodologies and pathways to to the world of commerce and, and the world of adulthood, all of those could have existed. And so right now we have this, this one experiment, which is fairly unique in the world and is doing wonderful things for a handful of kids who happen to be lucky enough to be leaving high school uh, or in college in the, the mid teens of the 20, 21st century. But there was all of this other progress that was not made for the last 50 years, the last 40 years, uh, because of the stupidity of the system. So it would have been amazing to think of the flourishing that could have happened if in the world there was 10,000 praxi. And, and again, I don't mean carbon copies of that program, but ones, uh, all different types of flavors of ways people become educated. And I, I genuinely would like to believe that the world might be vastly superior to how it is now uh, in, in terms of where we are in technological deployment, uh, how we are in our, our view of institutions uh, such as universities and the government, uh, our view of our role with commerce and our role in the workplace. Right now, uh, we just had the the presidential election and a lot of people say that the trump win is a lot to do with the the escape and lack of of good jobs you know that you can't be a a middle-class white person in america and know that you're going to succeed because these you know special type of jobs are there and of course these jobs are characterized as manufacturing jobs or factory jobs that any uh, dimwit can can do and and succeed at and of course, if everyone had these, this, if we had this wild and creative market of paths to maturity, paths to uh, commerce, paths to the workforce, uh, this this kind of threat might not be here. And that's the same thing when we talk about, like when we did the podcast on basic income guarantee or universal basic 
uh, universal basic income, that the terror of this forthcoming technological unemployment where people aren't allowed to have that job of driving a truck anymore, uh, you know, if, if we had all not been put through this meat grinder of public school and then public university, you know, this probably wouldn't be scary at all. We, we might all be supermen and superwomen uh, marching into the future, excited about automation and AI and self-driving cars and not bemoaning the fact that a lot of us won't have a job, you know, like such as driving a taxi or driving a truck that takes all of, you know, a 16-year-old two weeks to learn. I've heard a lot of different stories of how college originated, and the most common one that I hear of is that it's usually started for the clergy class, so that it was people who wanted to become a minister or a priest that went to college, and then later it sort of transferred into the generational wealthy where if you if you were sort of a, a wealthy businessman, you would your your children would then have this sort of luxurious experience of going to university to be taught sort of you know higher end conversational intellectual pursuits while also having a bit of a vacation uh, with your other young peers. And it wasn't until you know, much later, maybe the the middle of the of the 1900s, or maybe even later than that, that its universities started being conflated with. Well, here's here's rich people going to college, so the path to being rich must be to go to university, and then this mythology just boomed as as time went on, as the only way to differentiate or remove yourself or have any kind of class mobility was associated with going to college. So it went from being something that only the rich people and maybe the clergy had to something that was foisted upon everybody. And even as the myth has grown, you know, more and more ridiculous looking as even people coming out with like technology degrees, you know, very hardcore, uh, non-licensed things like in, you know, digital marketing or, or technology or subjects like that are still just woefully unprepared and then still saddled with debt, meaning that there has to be everyone sort of the emperor's clothes are being shown to not be there, that people are actually coming out prepared for for work when they're really just coming out with uh, an old set of knowledge, a less than useful set of skills for creating commercial value and being saddled with huge amounts of debt. So as this sort of this mythology of college hopefully unravels, I would say I'm perfectly fine with giving college back to the rich. So let it once again be something where the, the generationally wealthy, and what, what I mean by that is that your parents are rich, perhaps their parents were rich, and you're a rich kid who is going to spend four years, uh, you know, drinking out of a, um, a plastic solo cup, uh, taking some useless classes, knowing that this is, you know, how, how this is going to position you for your employment is fairly useless because you'll probably have some nepotism going into your, your parents' company or one of their friends. And let that experience with its sort of, you know, uselessness and its debt 
be something that only appeals to very wealthy people. And of course, very wealthy people who are going to understand this myth are going to be the first to reject it. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the if while we could say, let's give college back to the rich people and let's give everyone else a fair shake at, at finding a real useful and affordable path to maturity and commercial viability, it's probably going to be the rich people who are the first ones to say like, you know, uh, this isn't, you know, we see that we see the real value in this and it's not there. And so we're not going to do it. So that's sort of both a, what would be seen probably as crude opinion to give college back to the rich. And then another crude one that says they're going to reject it anyways. Hey guys. So I decided to make this video because I hate school. <laughs> I hate school so much. I just want to be a stripper. I give up. I'm done. I don't care anymore. I'm optimistic that in the future, good kids will be the ones who don't go to school, and it's good parents that will insist on it. Right now, this idea is completely reversed. It's seen as a virtue and a necessity and a critical enabler to spend this time in school, and it's considered, even even when kids are miserable with it, and every bit of evidence and every argument can be made that it's really a damaging influence on people, the parents will still consider themselves good and virtuous to insist on sending their kids to school, even if they haven't thought about it for even a moment, even if it requires them to both go to work to support their household, even if it means that this 97% don't actually get to spend the parent-childhood time together, mostly being apart and mostly thrusting great amounts of great amount of unhappiness on all parties involved. And they'll, you know, right now they, they consider the university to be imperative as well. I would like to think that in the future, this thought will go away. And I don't know how it's going to happen. The only way I can really think about it right now is to set the best example that we can by being vocal about not just accepting school as like an option or as something that, that is unavoidable, uh, but be a good example of showing how people can thrive and be happy uh, when their families are home together, when the kids are free to do what they want, when they are they embrace a love of learning instead of a hatred of learning, when their time is optimized so that this 15,000 hours of public school isn't just a complete waste of childhood joyfulness and opportunity, that that 5,000 hour, or how much would it be, 8,000 hour uh, opportunity of college and the, the debt that it, it comes with, uh, isn't seen as the def default and we're able to hand back to people this this time and the opportunity to become vibrant and productive and happy 
you know, commerce loving people in their, their adulthood. And that we can also de-school and reverse the damage that the schooling has done to its already existing victims, which could include you and includes me and includes most of the people uh, walking in the western half of the world. I'm, most, I'm optimistic that there's some good paths to, in the short term, homeschooling, and then in the longer term, a rich and vibrant and varied market of education options could get more popular. For starters, we're starting to hear a lot of stories about rich people who are doing it, and this is mostly at the celebrity level, whether it's uh, Will Smith and his family homeschooling his children or Elon Musk even setting up his own educational facility for his children and some of the other executives. I think more and more of these stories are going to come out, and it's always got to be the rich people who pioneer a path. Uh, they're the ones that always adopt new technology first when the new technology is expensive and has risk associated with it, and they have the resources both to accept that cost, uh, pay the double cost of paying their property taxes that go to public school while still educating their own children, and if the the appearance of risk, which probably really aren't there, but if they are there, they're, they're, they would be able to mitigate it. Uh, through emergency action. It's also going to be rich people because they're the ones that are going to have enough resources to live uh, in families where only one parent makes an income or where both parents only have to spend a limited amount of their week, you know, not the 40-hour week, but the five-hour week, the 10-hour week uh, dedicated to making income. The The homeschooling experience doesn't really require too much more money than that it can if depending on you know if you were to hire uh you know very high qualified tutors or uh, do specialized field trips or whatever it can cost money but it really doesn't have to it doesn't have to cost any more than schooling once a, a significant portion of people are removing themselves from traditional public schooling then we could actually see viable markets for other alternative types of education, whether that's going to be the the educational clubhouse, you know, or resource center, where uh, kids can still go and use computers and have have the access to the equipment and, and whatnot that public school kids sort of have, whether whether that's the library or the the chemistry set or the equipment for you know the the theatrical equipment to put on a play. Uh, which children in public schools have more access to than homeschool kids, only because the resources are are concentrated there. Once even we get to like 10% of the population, 20%, uh, all of a sudden new resources are going to come available to buy these for the kids who aren't going to public school. At the same time, as more people sort of end around the the traditional public school, the appetite to continue its uh, compulsory status and its compulsory funding will also sour uh, if if there's enough people who are saying we shouldn't necessarily have to pay for this resource that we're not using then eventually I think the politicians might follow suit the compulsory nature if enough people are are opting out of the law anyways thanks you know thank you to our Christian friends who get these exceptions then 
that law will will be you know be weakened to the point where no one will care about it and probably will never be taken off the books but will uh be ignored all the same other reasons why i see alternatives to education getting more popular is is we've seen on the news and this is like probably a, a 40 or 50 year news story is that school is perpetually getting worse more oppressive and less useful uh, as more and more curriculum comes down or or standards from the federal government you know whether it's uh, no child left behind or common core the complaints amongst the, even its most ardent endorsers uh, get louder and louder as the testing culture increases, as the school hours get longer, as the the pathologizing of bad behavior in school, meaning uh, you know giving people, kids uh, Ritalin for ADHD or putting kids on drugs gets more and more extreme. Uh, as all of these things that always keep the reformers up at night. Uh, come down the pike, the more and more school is going to look awful. And hopefully at some time, you know, sometime it will look bad enough where people will actually open their eyes and be horrified at at what it's become. Now, I I don't know how much faith I can actually have in this. I always think that, you know, our 14-year war in Iraq and Afghanistan would would get ugly enough where people would, would finally sort of take off their blinders or... People look at their tax bill uh, like I do and and sort of shriek and whore, and that doesn't seem to happen very quickly. But I think school might be visceral and personal and, you know, such an active part of everyone's life that the ugliness will seep into ways that might be just undeniable. But I can hope that. Uh, another reason why I'm um, ex- I'm optimistic is more people than ever are telecommuting to work. So it's not common at all that. So I I haven't, I haven't been to a meeting in about seven years. I haven't had to travel for work in probably 10 years. I've been working out of the home for 16 years, you know, and when I walk around the neighborhood during the day, I'm I'm finding a lot of my, you know, my peers, uh, just, you know, other men and women of my age, uh, still around their homes because they're so much able to work from home. If at least one person is telecommuting to work, even if you have a, a family that has two income, two income generators, uh, that one person telecommuting can perfectly have their kids around, you know, as soon as they get to be a, a certain age. And that age isn't very, very old. I'm talking about maybe seven years old. Uh, before that, it's kind of tough uh, to have a job and have a, a five-year-old because they are... They're, they're both needing of, of attention, help, um, and, and a playmate. So, but even if, if you can get to down to one parent telecommuting, even in a two income family, uh, at the age of six or seven homeschooling suddenly becomes very viable, which means a lot more people will be able to, to do it. Um, next reason to be optimistic is that information doesn't have a gatekeeper anymore. So to pretend that your third grade teacher uh, has sort of some exclusive uh, access and license to understand mathematics and history and geography and reading. And then, you know, of course, as we discussed in past podcasts, the interesting subjects, the useful subjects, the the myth, the myth that the school teacher uh, must be the one to 
to dole out information should disintegrate. And I think that will happen all the way through the high school years and into the universe, you know, the college years. People know now that even if you were to learn a very hard skill, uh, such as information technology, that the real information is available to you free online in better formats in fresher states than anything a university professor could give you. So that myth will is should be dissolving very quickly if it's not already, at least unconsciously, in the minds of our people. Uh, right now, I, I think new world skills are evolving faster than ever, which pretty much anything that's in the educational system is going to have a huge amount of lag time uh, for its relevancy. And I just and I don't mean history in particular, but Anything that's a useful, marketable, fungible, uh, resellable, value-producing skill is changing so quickly that that universities and schools are going to be absolutely hopeless in creating that information with any relevancy. Now, that's maybe that's here and there because schools already teach subjects that they can fail to deliver, as we talked about earlier. The critical skills always come from outside the school. So maybe that trend won't be as, as powerful as I think it is. But as the the word, the sort of the praxis type message that you can develop skills outside of this school system, you know, grows, I think that that becomes another fact that just becomes undeniable to people. Now, one big roadblock to all this is the the modern two-income family. And I have to imagine that this can become something better and not go on the downslide that it has been ever since the the sixties or seventies, whenever this happened, where the somebody introduced this these uh, very polarizing views of feminism, where it became this yucky thing to be a woman, a, a dis- disenfranchised position where. Uh, you were a homemaker and a parent first and were having a career became became uh, essential where this this magic moment happened where the the workforce essentially doubled that that must have done something to wages and though even though people had all of these new uh, time-saving devices everything from the washing machine to the dishwasher to the microwave that life became more expensive somehow that we needed two incomes to run a family and you know what were the implications for that on tax revenues to have people making twice as much and then consuming twice as much and so the trend away from family is even though i would think most people on their deathbed had they if they were reflecting on would would you have liked to have spent that time when your your child was five or seven or ten or twelve or fourteen you know would you have liked to have spent that time with them uh, actively being part of how they experience the world in a two-way street so that not only did they get to spend that, that wonderful time with you while they lived in your house, but you got to spend that wonderful time watching them uh, flourish and, and blossom as a human being. And I think if you're on that deathbed, you're looking back and you're like, no, I skipped that because we wanted to have X number of thousand dollars more of uh, disposable income uh, to buy certain features for our houses or or the car that we were required to have to go to work. You know, when you look back on that, are you going to say, like, uh, this 
this woman, in most cases, it was disenfranchised or hindered because she wasn't allowed to have a job and was allowed to to have this beautiful experience with her children, or was she better off being a member of the workforce? And I would think that people would reflect back on that and want the beautiful childhood family experience. And that doesn't have to be, we don't have to be sexist here in, in, in insisting that the woman is uh, barefoot and pregnant and the one taking care of the family. This can be a shared responsibility. Hopefully in a new future, people live uh, similarly to what I get to do, where we both get to be stay-at-home parents uh, for most of the time. Or if it makes sense for some families to have uh, stay-at-home dad, that's that's certainly fine too. But just as long as more parenting and more human-child relation, you know, familiar relationship is happening, not, you know, delegation of time to boredom in public school. Which means that people might, going forward, the different dimensions by which they manage and measure their lives, whether that's how much wealth they have, the, the money they have, their consumption patterns, how they spend their time, uh, how they, they value or measure happiness or how they experience happiness, how they value or experience relationships. This might have to wildly change for a lot of people in this, this sort of new post-school model. And I think it's all for the good. I think it's all a very happy story uh, when someone's going to look at the value they place on time and their children's time and their relationships and and even the the value of knowledge and the the value that that learning is is joyful and that information and understanding and all these other things are are fantastic and are a lot more achievable and enjoyable than necessarily uh having two parents grinding away for 60 hours a week each uh just to acquire more consumable goods and porting their kids off to somewhere awful uh, for that same purpose. So I think, I don't know, is that was that pessimism, optimism? I'm not sure. So all of those things, that thing, this this pursuit of, of I guess, of, of income and modernity in the sacrifice of familyhood and flourishing children is really something that makes people more poor. I mean, this this time constraint is a prison of unhappiness, and the future should not be poorer, but richer. So in that sense, when I first said the title of this podcast is, you know, is public, is, is public ed- education for poor people, I think in this way it is, because its whole sort of model of existence is a way of being poor in, in, is t- in, you know, in terms of time, growth, and happiness. So public school is for poor people. Public school makes people poor in many dimensions. And I don't, I don't think this will be immediately popular with, with very many people, but I really look forward to the day where public school is seen as something for poor people. And that's going to come out about in a lot of ways, uh, like we talked about just a few minutes ago, that it will be the rich people, you know, the the financially rich people who are the ones who are taking their kids out of school. And it will be literally the poor people who will have to continue to send their kids to school because they're going to be on that 
uh, that, that dual income or won't have the personal resources. So we'll see that, uh, that public school will be both a sign of poverty in the sense that it makes people time and, and happiness poor. And it's also something that is literally only done by the financially poor and people, uh, overall really hate poverty and they hate poorness. And it's, it's both our human nature and our good nature to do so. So, so a lot of times when we see poor people, we feel empathy and we want to help. And that has driven every, everything from the history of, of church and charity uh, to the misguided government programs that um, try to take care of the poor. Because we, we hate poorness so much that we feel empathy and we want to make sure that we alleviate people. And then other times, other people feel disgust towards poor people. So when you see, uh, you know, someone at Walmart, not, not even going to the hobo, you see begging for change, but, you know, you, you, you see the, tra- the trailer trash or the, uh, the what looks like the, sort of the dirty and ignorant poor, uh, overweight at Walmart or whatever, we feel disgust towards poverty. So even when we don't feel empathy, we feel disgust. And then sometimes we feel fear. And everyone's sort of carries, or most people carry natural anxiety towards whether they're going to lose their job, or if some bad financial situation, an illness or something comes up, that they're suddenly going to be thrust into poverty. So poorness is on a many dimensions, a disgusting thing. So if school is seen as a feature for poor people, and as a mechanism for being poor, uh, both, you know, either financially or emotionally, then the majority of normal people, the majority of people in general, will begin to hate it. So, in closing, public school is for poor people, and that's exactly how it should be.